Good morning, Summit Bible Church. Good to be with you this morning. All right, some enthusiasm. Is it the fourth? Some patriotism, some spirit? I love that. Good, good. Happy fourth. Hope you enjoy this day. And it is good that we're starting with the Lord. We're starting with our first love, the Lord Jesus Christ, and worship of Him together as a church this Sunday morning. Let me ask you, how is your walk? How's your walk doing? We've been going through the book of Ephesians here, and we're on the subject of walking. And Paul has exhorted us several times now in the text to walk in a certain way. And just as a reminder, our walk is the way that we live. It's the practice of what we preach. It's living out the truths we believe. You can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Or, I'm, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And today we're going to be in verses 15 to 17. Quick review. Paul exhorted us in chapter 4, verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. He exhorted us in chapter 4, verse 17, to not walk as the Gentiles do, those, the, the pagan, the worldly. He said to not walk in that way, and then contrasted again in chapter 5, verse 2, he says to walk in love, to walk in love. And then in chapter 5, verse 8, what we saw last week is to walk in the light, walk in the light. And this week, we have an exhortation to walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom. Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 17. I want to start with the foundation of what wisdom is. What is biblical wisdom? What is it? Is, is wisdom being smart? Being really smart. Is, is wisdom knowing a lot about a lot of different things? Is wisdom, or, or does it come only out of the academy, the university, the study? Is wisdom only for the philosophers, only for the thinkers or the scholars? No, that is not the case. Remember that in the book of Ephesians, we're walking through these commands now, the practice of our faith, and these are everyday commands for everyday people like us. They're commands for the church. So these commands are for the plumbers and the professors. They're for the students and the scholars, the mechanics and the mothers. This is for everybody. We all ought to walk in wisdom. Wisdom is for everybody. And put simply, here is my definition of wisdom. Wisdom is the knowledge of God applied. Wisdom is the knowledge of God applied. You could add applied in everyday life. See, wisdom is not just knowledge. It's not just the accumulation of facts and information, but wisdom is the ability to use them, the ability to think by them, to speak by them, and to live by their principles. It is applied knowledge. But it is not, in addition, it's not just academic knowledge. It's not just, you know, university knowledge, wisdom. It's also not just street smarts. It's not just common sense. It is more specifically a knowledge of God, 
applied through hearing and doing His Word. And so wisdom comes from God. Wisdom comes from God. Listen to these verses and they'll be up on the screen for you. How do we know this? Where do we see wisdom come from? Proverbs 2, 6 tells us plainly, For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. We ought to look to God for wisdom. He is the source of wisdom. Don't look to the world for wisdom. Don't look to the academy, the university primarily. Don't look at their systems. Don't watch and learn from Oprah, Dr. Phil, the next TED Talk, wherever the world goes for wisdom. Don't look there first. Don't look to a fortune cookie or a magic eight ball or the next get-rich-quick scheme. Look to God. If you seek or desire wisdom, look to God first. Wisdom comes from Him. So that's where wisdom comes from. But where does wisdom start in our life? How do we become wise? How do we become wise? Look at Proverbs 9, verse 10. We read it this morning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. And Colossians 2.3 says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So how does one become wise? Put simply, know Christ. Wisdom starts, wisdom begins in salvation. It starts in salvation. It doesn't start after graduation. It doesn't start when you reach a certain age or when you find yourself through a spiritual experience. None of those things. Wisdom starts with a true knowledge of God. Hearing the word of God, your mind and heart being illuminated to its truths, and responding, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Wisdom starts in salvation. 2 Timothy 3.15 says, You have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that is the word of God, which are able to make you wise for what? Salvation. Through faith in Christ Jesus. So if you believe in Christ, if you're a Christian here today, congratulations, you have been made wise. You have been made wise by faith, not because of anything that you've done, not because you read a lot of books or you went to college. You've been made wise by believing in the Lord Jesus. You have been granted wisdom. And so, if you have been made wise, so our text today, look at Ephesians 5, 15. What does it tell us to do now? How does wisdom continue? Ephesians 5, 15 says this. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So just like every other point in really the book of Ephesians, you have a command, but the command comes after the truth or the principle. You have been made wise in salvation. Now, Christian, walk in wisdom. Live out your identity. 
Paul says the same thing again in a different way with a different principle. You've been made wise, so live out your identity. Walk in wisdom. Wisdom doesn't just start and end in salvation when you were converted, when you became a Christian. Wisdom ought to be practiced in every area of your life. Walk it out. Wisdom ought to be an ornament to your lifestyle. It ought to be a part of everyday living. Proverbs 28, 26 says this, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who, what, walks in wisdom will be delivered. So how can we walk in wisdom? What does that mean practically, very practically? Well, that is what Ephesians 5, 15 through 17 tells us. He, they, the Apostle Paul provides three very practical ways for you to walk in wisdom wisdom. But before we get to the application and exposition of the exposition and application of the text, let me open our time in prayer. Why don't I start us with going to the Lord, asking for his wisdom. Father, we come to you this morning asking for wisdom. Lord, uh, we know and we believe that wisdom from you is more valuable than gold. It's more valuable than anything this world could offer or even promise us or grant us. Wisdom from you is so valuable. God, so we ask that you grant it to us, that you'd give us a greater knowledge of God, a, a greater understanding of who you are, and that we would apply that in our everyday lives. That we wouldn't just believe it, preach it, but we would live it. Help us to walk in wisdom today, and this week, and moving forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, three verses, three points. Sometimes how it works. Verse 15, point number one, watch your step. Watch your step. What does the text say? It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. It was Bilbo Baggins Good old Bilbo, who said this to Frodo. He said, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. Keep your feet, in other words, watch your step. Uh, as you know, our family went to Hawaii a couple weeks ago, and, and we tried a new hike. We hiked to Moena Falls. Moena Falls, I don't know if you've been there, but uh, beautiful falls on Oahu. It's a, about a one-mile hike in to the rainforest there. And uh, so the path is, is very wet at, at, in portions, and in other portions, it's, it's very rocky. And so I grabbed Joel, or my daughter's hands, and said, Joel, follow Daddy and watch your step. Watch your step. Because the, the, the rocks will make you trip and, and the wet ground will make you slip, okay? So watch your step. Be careful. And this is exactly what Ephesians 5.15 is telling us. Tread carefully in life. Tread carefully. Look carefully. This word carefully is interesting. It, it was used in uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 8. It was used when Herod asked the wise men, you remember they were looking for Jesus and Herod wanted to kill Jesus. And so he tells the wise men to search carefully 
for the boy to look diligently. He wanted them to conduct a thorough search. In other words, don't leave any stone unturned. Find the boy. Same word is used in Luke chapter 1, verse 3. It's how Luke, the great physician and historian, it's how he describes his research process. He says this in Luke 1, 3, he says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things carefully, there's our word, carefully, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. See, Luke's goal in writing the Gospel of Luke was not a mostly true, kind of disorganized, general idea of the life of Jesus Christ. That was not his goal. Luke's goal was precision, accuracy, order. And so what did he do? He researched carefully. He was careful in his study and his examination of the accounts of the life of Christ. And brother and sister in Christ, this is how we are to treat our walk. This is how we are to live our life with carefulness. Carefulness. Thoughtfulness. He doesn't want us to walk casually, to be kind of aloof, unaware about where we're going or what we're doing. He says, be careful. Watch your step. Be convinced that every step you take is wise, not unwise. Proverbs 14, 15 says something similar. It says, the simple believes everything, but the prudent, the wise, gives thoughts to his steps. One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. Proverbs 4.26 says, Ponder, think the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Be careful. Now, careful does not mean stifled. I want to correct that in your thinking. Being careful does not mean that you don't move at all, that you don't take any steps at all. You know, some people under the guise of, well, I'm just trying to be careful. They don't walk at all. They don't move at all. They kind of just sit down on the path and say, well, I'm not going to move forward until I'm comfortable or until I feel safe. That's not what the Lord is saying. That is not, un, that is not wise. That is unwise. That is not faith. That is fear, right? So we don't want to allow carefulness to prevent us from moving forward or living out our faith at all. We need to make decisions in life. We need to walk, live out our faith. But the Apostle Paul just says, be careful. Be careful with your steps. Not stifled, but careful. Wisdom is necessary. Carefulness is prudent. And this is required because as you and I both know, it is so easy to misstep in life. It's so easy. It is so easy to slip on the path or to trip on the rocks that life puts in front of us. We can very easily get off track. We can be distracted by lesser priorities in life. We can be sucked away by worldly philosophies. We could be pulled away by fleshly desires. We can easily be impulsive, emotional, reactive, and we can make very poor decisions in life every day. Very poor decisions with our words, our actions, even big decisions in life. It's so easy to slip, is it not? So easy to trip. And so wisdom is necessary. Carefulness is prudent. This is the difference between David of 2 Samuel 10 
This is the victorious king, the engaged king, the active king, David, the king after God's own heart. It's the difference between chapter 10 and chapter 11. What happened in chapter 11? Well, the king was aloof, walking at the top of his palace when he should have been out at war. And what happens? He makes a foolish decision after a foolish decision after a foolish decision. And his sin with Bathsheba and then the eventual murder of her husband. What's going on? What, uh, David, what are you thinking? Here, here is a lack of carefulness, a lack of watchfulness in his walk. And so Christian, leave no stone unturned in your life. Every area, your work, your family, your interactions with non-believers, be careful. Be careful. Walk in wisdom. Not as unwise, but as wise. And Paul gets even more specific in what you should be extra careful with in this text. Look at verse 16. This is the second point. Redeem the time. So you ought to be especially careful with your time. With your time. Look at the text, Ephesians 5, 16. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. You know, everybody gets the same amount of time in a day. Whether you're a, a plumber, a professor, a mechanic, a mother, a student, a scholar. Everybody gets the same amount of time. And how much time is it? 24 hours, right? The same amount of time we all get. Now, the difference between the wise and the unwise is how that time is used. How that time is used. Colossians 4, 5 says something very similar. It says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. The Greek word for making the best use is actually the same word that's translated to redeem or to buy back. And so the picture we could have in our minds is that of you going into a furniture store or a furniture warehouse, and you see thousands of pieces of furniture in this warehouse. And what are these pieces of furniture doing? They're just sitting there. They're not being used. So what do you do? Well, you pick a piece of furniture that you really like, a nice dresser maybe. And so you select that dresser and you purchase it. Why? Because you want to make use of it. You want to redeem it and actually use the piece rather than it sit there in the warehouse. That's the idea of what we are called to do with our time. We want to cull through our time carefully and take full advantage of every minute. We want to buy it back from worthless to useful, from a bad use of time to not good, but the best use of our time. The idea is to don't waste your opportunity. Don't waste the opportunity you've been given, specifically with your time. It is a very helpful, by the way, and good question to ask yourself before you make a commitment to your schedule, before you put something on your calendar, is to say, is this the best use of my time? Is this the best use of my time? Not, oh, I just kind of want to be productive, or, you know, I want to do something good, or uh, this is, will keep me busy for a time or for a while, or no, what is the best use of my time? What's the best use? And this word for time is also interesting. It's not chronos, which is the typical word for crime, we, or crime, time, not crime, time, 
we see in the New Testament, chronos, it's like the chronological time. This is kairos, kairos, which is an interesting Greek word that talks about your appointed time or the appointed season. So we're talking about basically a period with, with fixed limits that each of us has been given. And it's all different for every single one of us, isn't it? This is your margin of opportunity that you've been gifted by God. And your kairos is limited. Everybody has a different kairos, so to speak, an appointed time. Job 14, he says this, Man's days are determined, and the number of his months is with you, and you, God, have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Only the Lord knows your kairos, the appointed time that you've been given. And how are you going to use that time? Psalm 90 verse 12 says this, Teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. It is very wise for you, Christian, to understand that your time is limited. So the psalmist says, Lord, teach us to number our days so that we would gain a heart of wisdom. Be careful. Consider your time. Our kairos is not only limited, but it is purposeful. It's purposeful. God gave you the amount of time he gave you for a purpose, with reason. This is what Mordecai tells Esther in the book of Esther. Do you remember the story of Esther? Esther, a Jew, was chosen by Xerxes, the Medo-Persian king, to be his wife. And Mordecai says in in chapter 4, verse 14, he wonders whether, he says, Esther, I wonder whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, this might be your purpose. This might be why God allowed you to be born during this time. And, And this is what he has for you to really, to use your position of influence to save the people of Israel. It's a story about God's providence. In Acts chapter 13, 36, it says this, For David, talking about the king, after he had served his purpose of God in his own generation, in his own kairos, he fell asleep. He died. So David, he served his purpose and then he died. That, by the way, is what I would like to have written on my tombstone. Morgan, Maitland, he, he served his purpose and, and then he died. And that's that. We want to use our time according to the reasons that God has given us that time. We want to take advantage of every opportunity. And we ought to feel the urgency here. We ought to, you know, even be thinking now, oh man, how can I make the best use of my time? Why? Why is this so important and urgent? The text tells us. Look at the text. Because the days are evil. Make the best use of your time. Why? Because the days are evil. It's bad out there, and it's only going to get worse. What does Paul mean? What do you think the Apostle Paul is thinking about when he writes, the days are evil? He's writing this to a church in its context, the church in Ephesus. Surely he's considering the pagan culture around Ephesus, the false gods that they worship, the worldly temptations that surround the church. He might be thinking about the opposition that they face from the world. Maybe even the persecution that's soon coming for this church. Maybe Paul's just thinking in general, he's considering the evil age. These are the last days, the days where 
We know the, the church is sent out to share the gospel, fulfill the Great Commission, but the culture will steadily and slowly decline, and eventually the Lord comes back. There is looming judgment when Christ will come, and he'll recompense every person according to their deeds. And he's going to ask us, what did you do with the time that you were given? That's what Matthew chapters 23 through 25 is all about. It's all about what are you going to do with the time? How are you going to steward your time awaiting Christ's imminent return? The days are evil. Redeem the time. It's bad out there and it's only going to get worse. The king is coming. He's going to return. What a shame it would be if the Lord came back and found the Ephesians spending most of their time working for a, a big paycheck, a nice house, securing a large pension. What a tragedy it would be if the Lord came back and found the Ephesians investing more time and resources into their sports, into recreation, into hobbies, than into the local church than into discipleship or into evangelism? How embarrassed would the Ephesians be? How embarrassed would they be if the Lord came back and found them spending more than eight hours a day looking at a screen, watching Netflix or scrolling through social media? Wait a minute. That's not Ephesus. That's us. <laughs> That's how... The average American spends their time investing into those things. That's not the day of Ephesus. That's our day. How much worse has it gotten? Man, our day is evil. Our day is bad and getting worse. How much more should we look carefully in how we spend our time and make the best use of it? I mean, the day is bad, and it's only getting worse. There's no wonder that so many children are abandoning the faith of their parents, that denominations are splitting and shrinking at a rapid rate, Christian leaders are failing morally, churches are quickly adopting secular philosophies and theories, America is disinheriting any semblance of the Judeo-Christian morality that it once imbibed. Happy Fourth. Christianity is no longer comfortable, and, it, and it's only going to become increasingly more uncomfortable. The days are evil, brother and sister. How are you using your time? How are you using the kairos that God has given you? What should change in your schedule? What new habits need to be formed? What encumbrances should be laid aside? Maybe it is not sin to watch TV. Maybe it's not sin to have a social media account, but... Could it be an encumbrance in your life? Could it be a distraction that maybe you ought to lay aside to make the best use of your time? How can you apply this text and walk in wisdom? Desperate times call for desperate measures. The urgency of our moment demands an urgency from our people. We need more men and women who know their Bibles, who have a growing understanding and knowledge of God. We need more godly marriages we need more discipleship of our children. We need more time together as a church. We need more gospel witness in the workplace. We need more Bible training to 
identify, equip, train, and send out more missionaries, more evangelists, more pastors. These are the things that matter. These are the priorities in our lives. Wouldn't this be a a good use of our time? What matters most? What are our biblical priorities? And do our schedules reflect that? I'll tell you, your biblical priority is not to live a comfortable American lifestyle. That's not number one on the list. What matters most is the king and his kingdom. And by the way, you don't have to be a pastor to make a kingdom impact. You don't have to be a pastor to evangelize your neighbor or to share the gospel with a coworker or to have a faithful marriage or to be a good father, to be a good mother. What is your kairos and what did God give you your kairos to do, your time? Redeem the time. Make the best use of it. Point number three, understand God's will. Understand God's will. Look at verse 17. It says, therefore, do not be foolish. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. First, the negative. Don't act the fool. Don't be foolish. Well, what is foolish? The Bible speaks very plainly to the fool. A lot of it is in Proverbs. Let me just go through a list. Maybe write down references as you catch them. This is going to be a a machine gun fire of verses here, okay? Fool. What is the fool? Well, the fool rejects God, first and foremost, Psalm 14.1. Fools despise wisdom and instruction, Proverbs 1.7. Fools lack emotional control, Proverbs 29, 11. Fools talk too much, <laughs> Proverbs 29, 20. Fools trust in themselves, Proverbs 28, 26. Fools are reckless and careless, Proverbs 14, 16. Fools are quick-tempered, Proverbs 14, 29. Fools don't learn from their mistakes, but they keep repeating them. Proverbs 26, 11. Fools ignore correction. Proverbs 15, 5. Fools are gullible, believing all things. Proverbs 14, 15. Fools look for a fight. Proverbs 23. And fools disobey and dishonor their parents. Proverbs 15, 20. That's for you kids. Do not act the fool. There's more to say. But do not be foolish. Don't walk that way. Don't allow your lifestyle to be characterized by those things. But instead, instead, the passage says, understand what the will of the Lord is. What is God's will? You might be asking more personally and individually, what's God's will for my life? Isn't that what you want to know? What's God's will for my life? What's his purpose? For the kairos that I've been given, the time. Can we know God's will? Some people treat it like it's a mystery, like it's this mystical awe. We can't ever know. We can't ever be sure. Let's just hope that that it happens, that we walk in God's will. That's not the case. God would not, listen, God would not command us to understand something that we could not understand. Amen? Amen? So he gives us his will. He enables us to understand his will. And that's what we seek and desire to do. 
Walking in the will of God is not like walking on a fog-covered path without any sense of direction. Knowing God's will helps our steps be sure, helps us to walk in wisdom. God makes his will very plain to us in the scriptures, in his word. Where do you find God's will? It is right here, right in the scriptures. Listen to 2 Peter 1, 3. I have them up here in verses 20 to 21. His divine power has granted to us all things. Some things? No, no. All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. There we go. The scriptures, his divine power has given us everything we need to live a godly life, to have a godly marriage, to be a godly husband, to be a godly wife, to be a godly father, mother, to be a godly plumber at work, to be a godly professor in the academy. We have everything we need. We have all the wisdom, access that we need and the ability to apply it. Look at this. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It doesn't come from just some random guy's opinion. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but, contrast, not by man's will, but men spoke from God. God's will is revealed to us in scriptures as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Case in point, the word of God reveals the will of God. We have everything we need in the scriptures. So what, how can we know if we're walking in God's will? You can study and be a doer of the word. Know and apply the scriptures. Next week, we're going to talk about being filled with the Spirit. That's in line with the will of God. Galatians 5.16 says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. How can you know if you're in God's will? Are you walking by the Spirit? When you're determining whether the decision in front of you is wise or unwise, you're trying to make a, a judgment call, right? Should I do this or should I not? Is this God's will for my life or is it not? What you need to practice doing is going to the word and applying the principles from God's word to that decision. Let me tell you something. The word of God will tell you if you should move or not. The word of God will tell you if you should take the job or not. Just not in the way that you want it to. <laughs> It's not gonna, you're not going to open the Bible to 1 Thessalonians 5 and say, oh, hey, yeah, Morgan, you ought to move now. Or you should take this job. It's a great opportunity. No, that's not how the Word of God reveals His will to us. But it does tell you. It does provide all the wisdom you need in order to make that decision. How, you ask? Well, look at 1 Thessalonians 4.3. Here's the explicit will of God, your sanctification. What does sanctification mean? That is that you would grow in holiness, that you would grow in your walk with the Lord, that you become more like Christ and not less like him. So you ask the question, will this job or this move sanctify me? Will it grow me? Because I know that's God's will. Is this going to help me grow in holiness? Or will this job or move stifle my growth? 
Will it tempt me to sin? Will it remove one of the most significant means of grace that God has given us, which is the church, to help us in our sanctification? 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. There's an explicit, explicit verse. The will of God is that you would be thankful. So, let me ask, is this new job or this move a result of your discontentedness or ungratefulness? Are you running from a difficult circumstance to what you perceive as greener grass on the other side, i.e., the paycheck isn't really what I want it to be, or housing's more expensive than I'm comfortable with. So those are the driving forces that cause you to move or cause you to take the job, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I know there's a bit of a stretch. I know there are a lot of other factors that go into making big life decisions like that, but what you really need to evaluate are your motives. Why? Why take the job or not take it? Why move or not? Is the driving force behind your big life decisions discontentedness? Or is it more money? Or is it easier or more comfortable living? Do those drive your decisions because the scripture speaks to those attitudes and those motivations? Or have you really considered the things that God says are really important in your decision making, like participation in the local church, like the discipleship of your children, like evangelism in the community, like your own holiness and personal sanctification. Don't allow the world to tell you what's important, but have God's word tell you what is important. And live by His wisdom, not the world's wisdom. Make decisions based on His wisdom and not the world's wisdom. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind. That by testing. Testing. What are you testing? You're testing your mind. You're testing your motives. You're evaluating your heart. What are you testing it by? What's your standard? The Word of God. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. You can know God's will. How can you know it? Knowing the word and applying it to your life. Don't think that the Bible doesn't speak to the big decisions in your life. It does. It does. Knowing God's word and applying it in your life. As I close, I want to recount a conversation I had at Hawaii Kai Church. So uh, when I was away on vacation, I had the opportunity to preach at Hawaii Kai Church. Great church. I love the pastor there, Dan Wong. Uh, faithful brothers and sisters in Christ that get to minister in just a little bit better temperature, you could say. Um, but I had the opportunity to preach at that church. It was a joy and a privilege. And a, a man came up to me after the service, and he just encouraged me. He said, oh, pastor, I really appreciated your sermon. And I wanted to get to know him a little bit. So I said, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. And he said, well, uh, me and my wife are new believers. We came to know the Lord, and we came to know the Lord at this church they invited me to church, and, and we came to know the Lord together. We were baptized together at this church. We're involved in discipleship here. We're in, connected in a small group. And, man, we are just so thankful for the Lord and his work through this church. We couldn't be happier in this place. And he was boasting about what the Lord was doing in and through the people there and in their lives in Hawaii. 
And uh, he said, kind of just passing comment at the end, he said, you know, but it's a bummer that we have to leave. I said, really? Why, why do you have to go? He said, well, you know, me and my wife work and we have great jobs, great jobs. He said, in fact, my wife has worked long enough to have a full pension. He said, but the problem is, is that I need to work a couple more years to get my full pension. And so in order to do that, we have to move and I need to continue employment elsewhere. I just kind of smiled and said, well, then don't go. <laughs> don't go. You just told me how much this church has blessed you and how the Lord has worked through uh, this church to influence you to, I mean, you're talking your conversion, your sanctification. Why would you leave this place? And he told me, he said, well, that full pension is kind of like a carrot dangling in front of me. And just a carrot that I can't let go of. And I, so I, I was the end of the conversation. I, I walked away. Now, I'm not expressing my opinion on whether he's making a good or a wise or unwise decision. That's between him and the Lord. There may be other factors involved in their move, and, and God may be able to use that move in his providence for his own glory, but just the principle of the carrot dangling in front of him. It was the pension, right? The full pension. What I'd like to do is just put another carrot in front of you. This carrot should be in view in every life decision we make, whether it's a move, whether it's taking a job, whether it's deciding on how to homeschool or send your kids to school, whatever decision you're making, this is the carrot that should be in view. This should motivate us more than the money. Here's what it says, Proverbs 3.13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver. Her profit, better than gold. She is more precious than jewels. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness. And all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. How's that for a happy life? It doesn't come from money, financial gain, or security. It comes from the Lord, wisdom from Him. May we all walk in wisdom and have every decision we make be motivated, being careful, being motivated by God and His Word, not what we want or not what the world tells us to want. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we ask that you would give us wisdom. Give us a heart of wisdom. Lord, help us to not be so uh, easily taken by our own desires. Help us to not be influenced by the world and what they say is smart or not smart and wise, unwise. God, let us learn from you. Help us to understand your will as it is revealed in your word, and to live in such a way that we are doers of the word. I pray that every day, every person in this room would read the Bible. And I pray that they would not just read it to read it, but understand it, meditate on it, and, and chew on it throughout their day. And that that word would not just be thoughts in the head, but they would be actions lived out in their lives. 
and so that every decision made in every day is honoring to you and glorifies you. Help us to make the best use of our time. Lord, the days are evil, and we just want to glorify you with our, with our time. One of the most valuable resources you've given us. Help us to do that this week, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.